Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 213 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. And that apparently happens once a month. It's January 19th, 2022, our first new episode of the year. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. All I can say is less time elapsed between episodes 212 and 213 than between 211 and 212. So we're, we're on the upswing. You're right. This is an accelerating podcast. Um, before you know it, will be hourly. But listen, there was a period of time, as I recall, I feel like there was a, didn't we, wasn't the Comey emergency episode actually recorded the same day as another episode? I think it was. Oh my God, that feels like forever ago. I will say, you right? know, depending on what the future holds, we might find ourselves back in the uh, multiple times per week uh, category. I think we do aspire to get back into at least a, a bi-weekly, if not a full weekly schedule. Steve, you even suggested a weekly schedule. I mean, if the thing, I mean, if, if things go bad enough, we could just be a, a, a live stream. <laughs> yeah, it's just like always on. People just tune in and they're like, are they there? The, the, the Truman Show. It's just, <laughs> I like that idea. I can just keep the camera on in here. You can just like kind of stare at the books. People can I mean, check if you don't out want to make a right. national security joke out of it, it's the Truman Project Show. Oh, oh. <laughs> Hey, um, we were in 30A in Florida on the beach some time back, and and uh, I guess somewhere in Seaside is where the actual house from the Truman Show and a little bit of the neighborhood was all filmed there. I'm sure some listeners have seen it. Um, pretty pretty fun to see that. That movie is, uh, I don't know if it really holds up that well, but I will say I think today actually is Jim Carrey's birthday. And how old do you think he is? 54. Apparently he's 60. No, okay. I'm not sure that's right, but. There you I, go. You know, my my this is this is this is a bit niche, but my favorite Jim Carrey movie is Liar. Wait, wait, don't say it. That that is Frivolity Gold right there. Let's oh, do Jim right. Carrey for Frivolity. All right, all right. Well, I've already sort of given it away, but maybe I'll do my, maybe I'll have to come up with a second favorite Jim Carrey movie. Exactly. Well, there'll be much to say. We'll break down a few, and I'm sure many people are listening to this thinking like, for Frivolity Gold, come on. I'm gonna turn this off as soon as you guys finish. Are you talking like, about liar, that? liar is it? Liar, liar is like. I mean, there are so many great memes from like, Your Honor, I object on what crown because it's devastating to my case. It's damaging to my case. I'm with you there. I will. I will preview for Valdi and say I am completely down with oh, liar, right, liar. So, so, so why don't we tell the folks what we're going to talk about before we get frivolous? Great. Um, on a decidedly serious note, we have the uh, the. Deadly as a heart attack threat of a Russian invasion or further extension of what Russia has already done to Ukraine. So we're gonna we're gonna run through some of the international uh, legal issues that maybe are associated with this. Uh, spoiler alert: they're not tricky. They're pretty straightforward, but it's a good occasion to rehearse. And um, not everybody who listens to the show, of course, is is uh, familiar with those frameworks. So we'll run through them. We'll even talk a little bit about uh, possible future pathways where the U.S. is involved in various ways and how that might look legally speaking. Um, we should talk turning to insurrection, insurrection Landia, uh, the former Trump Landia. We've got uh, Thompson versus Trump was argued before Judge uh, Meta. Really interesting presidential immunity questions raised there. Um, and, and perhaps some free speech issues there as well. And then we've got the seditious, at long last, the seditious conspiracy charges that from January 6th onwards, many of us have been wondering, would there ever be such a charge? I think early on on this show covering that topic, this is what we were focused on as the sooner or later, the big moment surely going to come. And now it's here. <laughs> and Steve, you got to You've got a curious connection to that case, which we will get to in, in a little bit of frivolity. <laughs> serious topic. Yes, um, the, got, the old, the old, the old, uh, the loss of the, the most likely to be charged with seditious conspiracy, conspiracy. law school <laughs> That's a great teaser. Uh, only it's not a joke. Um, all right, and then we have some that, Guantanamo. That might, be, that might be our episode title: "Most Likely to Be Charged with Seditious Conspiracy." Oh, I'm writing that down. That is so good. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Oh, Did I miss anything? Oh, sorry. So uh, um, we're also going to take a little bit of a Gitmo, a Gitmo swing. Okay. Um, yeah, we have some developments there. There wouldn't be an episode yeah. of the National Security Law Podcast without a military commission judge leaving. Um, and, and in this case, without five new detainees being cleared for transfer. Um, 
And indeed, since we have last recorded, the 20th anniversary of Guantanamo came and went, Bobby, you know, not very well marked outside of the human rights community. Um, there was, yeah, there was outside of the circle, the very limited circles of uh, like lawfare and just security. There was obviously coverage in those places. Um, and the mainstream press, this was, this no. is not in American politics today. This is not a newsworthy topic by and large. And so it didn't get much attention. Um, okay. So that gives us a lot to run through. Um, yes, we were skipping over all sorts of crazy stuff that's happened since December 17th, but, uh, like me, get, like me getting COVID. Oh yeah, that's right. So, Hey, how you feeling? Um, I'm, you know, it's weird. I'm, I'm now testing negative, although I'm still, I still don't feel hundred percent. Like I still have some residual fatigue and like nasal symptoms, but at least the, the home rapid tests keep coming back negative. So I seem to be over it. Well, I hope, I hope you're better soon. And, uh, I know, I know you had a relatively rough ride, um, with it and I'm sorry for that. And it's a reminder, uh, to all of us who may think, uh, you know, Hey, if I get it, no big deal. You don't know that. You don't know that at all. Maybe if you're lucky. Um, all right. So, and then we'll have a little, uh, NFL playoff football football and Jim Carrey frivolity. Hey, can I just bust your chops though? I, I so wanted to talk about Boba Fett. I'm ready to talk about it. I have so many things to say about it. Mostly not very good. Um, you got to get on that. And, and I think it's our true measure of how busy you are that you are not caught up on Boba Fett. Listen, from January 6th to January 26th, Sydney's going to have had one day in daycare. Okay, when that number starts going back up, I will watch, I will watch the show. It seems to me you could solve one problem with another I sit down. <laughs> speaking of sp- speaking of the uh, uh, maybe we could solve one problem with another. Uh, exactly. Have you seen the Have you seen the the Hamilton and Canto mashups? <laughs> no, but I have seen Encanto, so I'm curious to see or to hear from you. Like in in what way do they mash it up? Tell so me. Lin Manuel Miranda posted this. I think it was a TikTok um, mashing up. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno. And Hamilton and Alexander and, and Alexander Hamilton. We oh, yeah. don't have talk you guys, about Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> have you uh, have you watched Encanto? Because we could do a little uh, uh, parents have I, watched, have I watched Encanto? I mean, I mean the better question is have I, the better question is have I watched Encanto today? Like, I mean, <laughs> Maddie and Sydney are obsessed. <laughs> awesome. All right, have so I we'll have that Encanto. Bobby, every, you know, every I, time we get in the car, hey girls, do you want to listen to anything? And Kanto. You're like, oh yay. Oh, that one's broken oh, on Apple. Broken. Apple. Oh, oh, the, the tape is broken. Daddy, it's on yeah. your phone. <laughs> no, my phone, my phone's broken too. All right, friends. Um, we're ready to dive in. So at the eight-minute mark, here comes some actual national security law. Let's yeah. talk about the, um if the ball drops in uh in Ukraine. Uh, the first and obvious legal question presented is, um, are we talking about an act of aggression? Are we talking about a violation of UN Charter Article 2.4 by Russia? Um, so first of all, yes. Yes. I don't, Steve, is there any, is there anything else to say about this or is this no. just a naked act of aggression if they invade? Naked act of aggression. Next. Okay. Now, um, it's, you know, Pentagon uh, spokesperson, is it, is it General Kirby or Admiral Kirby? Yeah. I forget. Admiral, Admiral Kirby, I believe. My apologies. Um, Admiral Kirby uh, famously came out the other day saying, we have a high confidence that there is a Russian intelligence team inside Ukraine's borders trying preparing to stage an incident. The uh, classic requirement of all, uh, all such scenarios is that you stage some sort of ham-handed incident uh, Judging by the way that uh, Russian military intelligence has operated in other contexts, like uh, the assassinations they've carried out, it's certainly easy to imagine they might do this. Steve, does this change the UN Charter analysis? Steve's <laughs> <laughs> looking at me for wasting his time. Um, so, why do it then? What, what what do you what's your take on on why that is done? It obviously it's not going to persuade. Us and therefore it doesn't, from a legal perspective, doesn't change the legal analysis at all. But are we the are we the relevant audience? No, I guess we're not. Uh, it's the useful <laughs> idiot who might say, "Well, I don't know. I mean, what I read." But, um, 
you're right. They're, none of this has been done for legal reasons. They're not worried about being hauled into court. By the way, why aren't they worried, Steve, about UN Security Council action? Because they have a permanent veto? Yeah, yeah. So there's like no talk. Notice how there's really no, I'm sure the UN is in its own way, you know, all, all paying attention and paying due regard to this uh, seized of the issue or whatever. Um, it seems to have no impact in the public discourse. This is quite a contrast to the highly UN-centric uh, uh, focus of the 2002 to 2003 pre-invasion of Iraq period. Um, any thoughts on that? Does, that? does that just reflect the fact that nobody thinks the Russians care in the slightest and just no one's paying attention? Um, yes. Has the UN further lost credibility since that time? Um, in- I, don't know, I, mean, I, I don't know that it's a credibility problem, Bobby. I think it's just that everyone understands the political constraints on the UN's ability to do anything. So it's just a waste of time to look there. Um, it is interesting, though, nonetheless. I mean, this, this, beyond everything else, this is the most bedrock purpose of the United Nations system, in my opinion, at least as a, at least as a matter of what the nations that originally formed it were trying to accomplish. Um, to to yeah, have somebody to speak to and hopefully do something about uh, aggressive warfare. I, I feel like there's an analogy though, like much like the Constitution is crafted in a way that famously does not anticipate the rise of modern political parties. You know, I feel like the Security Council is crafted in a way that did not fully appreciate just how quickly the United States and the Soviet Union would be antagonists. Or, or at least there was nothing to be done. And, and maybe you could say by the, time, by the time of the signing and, and the conclusion of the original process in San Francisco. Well, I mean, I mean, they, I mean, they could, I mean, they could have made it a two-vote veto, right? Like, I mean, I mean, instead of instead of a, I mean, one, you know, you could have in theory constructed a proposal where one where one veto wasn't sufficient, but two were. Yeah, that would certainly be make the council more functional, which perhaps was the reason it wasn't done. I don't know if anyone even tabled that. And then that would, and then that would give a ton of power to China. It would now, although it might well have might well have impacted what happened in the in the uh, uh, was it the Carter administration when uh, the recognition was switched from Taiwan yep. to Beijing. Yep, yep. I should say switched from Taipei to Beijing. Indeed. All right. Well, so the UN the UN is going to be nothing but a bystander on this True. of necessity by by structural design. Um, what about uh, when if, if this happens, the Ukrainians one hopes won't be fighting in isolation. Perhaps somebody might join the fight in their defense, although I don't know, maybe not, not in an overt way, but let's let's map it out. So possibility one, one or more other countries, whether it's the United States or otherwise, actually directly joins the fight. Uh, let me let me be clear. I'm reasonably confident the United States will not do that uh, for a variety of escalation related reasons. But let's assume somebody did. Um, no UN charter there. No UN charter problem there because Ukraine is the victim state of an armed attack, and this is collective self-defense. Am I right about that? This is very straightforward. Anyone who's willing to help the Ukrainians, perfectly within their legal rights to do so, that's not a difficult question. It's sort of a, even if you didn't have the Security Council resolution for it, this would be like South Korea and aiding South Korea, how yeah. it would have been without the resolution. Okay, what yeah. about the more likely thing? Um, covert support. It's uh, reasonably clear that already there's some amount of steps that probably have been taken to to do what can be done covertly to support them. There's There's been news articles speculating about this, talking both about CIA activity that might be happening and about special forces activity. And this is, this is classic core regular warfare mission for special forces. Um, on the covert action side, I guess the only thing to say about this is it would require a presidential finding with notification given to the intelligence com- committees. Imagine that's probably already happened. And if not, it would happen. There's no reason to think it wouldn't. Um, that same structure, that structure doesn't apply to what special forces might be doing. Steve, any thoughts on the legal frameworks uh, domestically we ought to keep in mind insofar as there's any form of special operations activity, whether involving Green Berets as such or something something more on the- I mean, don't, don't, uh, don't you don't you think the most likely scenario is some is maybe some special ops on the cyber side? Well, so cyber cyber is relatively easy, right? In the sense that you don't have to put personnel into harm's way, and so that right. that, that right. both simplifies the war powers discussion because you're not inserting uh, 
service members well, into hostilities and so forth. It, wait, 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 wait. It simplifies the war powers discussion as OLC has interpreted the war powers discussion. Uh, yeah, true. Uh, it, it, is, <laughs> it is hard to imagine um, on the spectrum that runs from, you know, we've got Joint Special Operations Command operators on the ground to, and, uh, to Cybercom has done something. You know, the far easier case for not having a war powers problem is if it's just some malware as opposed to any troops on the ground. Uh, it's a really interesting question. What sort of on the ground presence uh, will we have in that circumstance that's not under color of Title 50? And, and if so, what sort of uh, WPR type legal analysis will be required? Again, friends, for those listening at home, what we're talking about is the domestic American law separation of powers. Um, and we're not even so much talking about the question of whether in the first instance the president has authority to make use of service members in this way. Um, that is to say, not for overt participation in the armed conflict, but to do special forces, regular warfare type things in support of Ukrainian forces. Um, but whether and to what extent this triggers the war powers resolution by inserting U.S. personnel yeah, into right. a situation of hostilities where hostilities are reasonably imminent, um, that would right. be a situation of hostilities. And so if you have boots on the ground, uh, you're you're pretty much there, I think. Um, and so I wonder if the Biden administration might look at that and think, you know, what we want to do in this circumstance in order not to do something as uh, diplomatically provocative and potentially escalatory is doing a public notification that we're doing this is uh, put it under color of a Title 50 operation where it's still a special operations activity in practical terms, but it's uh, seconded in effect bureaucratically to uh, CIA, much like Operation Neptune Spear, exactly like Operation Neptune Spear with Bin Laden. Anyways, very interesting to see what might unfold there. Let's pray and hope that none of this ever materializes and that it's all Russian brinksmanship. Uh, any other thoughts or reflections do you, do you, on... Do you think it's brinksmanship or do you think that this is Putin just sort of seeing like it's it's Putin seeing what he can get away with? That's the question. Um, it does seem to me that it's not that hard for him to decide that he might be able to get away with quite a lot here and therefore that he'd do it. And also, and this maybe is more telling, um, is it really conceivable for him to back down without taking an inch of territory after all this buildup? Uh, right. Is he likely to do that? That that to me seems like it becomes a driver in itself. Um, and of course, he's a he's a sophisticated planner of these sorts of things. I think he surely understood the whole time that the further uh, further he went, the less likely it was that he could back down. Uh, but that just gets into, you know, gets into your poker analysis. So he knows that. And knowing that he knows, knowing that he knows that, does that enhance the the bluff? Is it just a bluff? I don't know. Um, anything else legally speaking to say about this? Nope. For the time. Yeah. All right. Um, buckle up, perhaps. Turning from one uh, depressing topic to uh, well, another, let's talk about Further aftermath um, from January 6th and the insurrection, we now have at long last seditious conspiracy charges. Steve, you want to share some sort of basics on the, the nature of that federal crime and some examples perhaps of where it's been used before? What is it that makes it so much more challenging and why was it such a big deal to wield this out now? So, I mean, as, as, as you said, I mean, we talked about seditious conspiracy, which is 18 U.S.C. Section 2384, shortly after January 6th, um, because we thought this was, you know, the mother of all criminal charges that could come out of the events of that day. Um, and let me just, I'm just going to read the whole statute. Uh, so if two or more persons in any state or territory or any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, you can be fined or in prison, blah, 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 blah. Um, so lots like of force, like five, or six, five or six different pathways there. That's right. But I think, I mean, the big one here is, right, um, by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, right? So the sort of the argument here is that uh, Stuart Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers named in the indictment were part of a conspiracy to 
um, prevent, to frustrate, to delay um, the counting of electoral votes, the certification of president, then president-elect Biden's victory, um, and that this therefore constitutes seditious conspiracy. And then could you also, so that's the, the sort of the fourth or fifth bucket on the list. And the final yep. bucket about property, uh, since they seem prepared to, uh, since they were attempting to, and, and, and to some extent did, hold uh, territory on Capitol Hill, does that also count? Yes. I mean, you know, I'll be interested to see how this evolves, Bobby, right? I could imagine prosecutors trying to make out a couple of different theories under 2384. Um, seems to me, right, that it might actually be a bit harder to show, um, you know, the force to seize, take, or possess property um, versus force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law. Like, you know, I, right, that, that, an intent to actually physically control property might be a little bit of a harder showing than an intent to disrupt the joint session. Yeah, it, it does seem like basically, I mean, am I wrong to think this is kind of a layup as long as they focus on uh, a, a conspiracy, which is simply to say an agreement, an agreement amongst uh, more than one person to try to prevent execution of the various federal statutes associated with the conclusion of the election process that was at work that day. I mean, it doesn't seem there's the slightest factual doubt that that is what they were attempting to do, right? I mean, is this, at the end of the day, is this even a hard case as a strict black letter law matter as applied to this particular fact pattern? If the allegations in the complaint are true, are proven, right, beyond reasonable doubt, which is, of course, the prosecution's burden at trial, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, I mean, Bobby, we can imagine that the defendants may try to uh, interpose constitutional objections as defenses. But, you know, one of the most famous pre-9-11 terrorism trials um, is the, the trial of the blind sheikh, United States versus Rahman, um, where there is a lengthy Second Circuit decision. I want to say from the late 90s. Does that sound right? Um, maybe 2000. 98, yeah. 98, yeah. So 98, 99, 2000. Um, that rejects both First Amendment challenges to the seditious conspiracy statute, and um, it rejects the argument that the seditious conspiracy statute unconstitutionally dilutes the requirements for treason prosecutions on the ground that seditious conspiracy is a distinct offense. So, right, there's no I, duty of loyalty element to this. You could be a right. So I, right. So I'm. I, I mean, you know, assuming the prosecution's in a position to prove this at trial. This is a pretty strong, I, I mean, you know, the allegations are pretty damning. Yeah, no, and, and a lot of that is rooted in messages that they've got that were exchanged amongst the defendants on Signal. They were using Signal, which which has led to some people online being like, what the heck, does the government have some secret ability to, to break that encryption? <laughs> what they've got is a secret ability to get people to cooperate by indicting lower level people who have the messages on their phone and then right. share that. That's the secret power they've right. got. Not, not so much of an expectation of privacy in someone else's phone. That's the problem when you conspire with people to commit crimes. They might share <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so to... yeah, you gotta you gotta share. Like, you mentioned this at the, in the front of the show. You know this guy. Um, you you so, don't just know so... this guy. So Elmer Stewart Rhodes, who is the lead defendant and the head of the Oath Keepers, um, was actually in my first year small group um, when I was a, a 1L at Yale Law School in the fall of 2001. Um, I mean, and so what that meant people at Yale Law School, for heaven's yeah, sake. Well, I mean, Josh Hawley went there too. Um, so um, listen, if we were going to have a competition, Bobby, of Harvard Law School alums versus Yale Law School alums, I'm not sure Harvard comes out better on, on, in that. We've got the numbers and the votes. <laughs> oh, anyway. not a good competition. Sorry, got it backwards. Um, yeah, okay. So, do you have any reflections or memories of this particular individual? So, I mean, Stuart, you know, this was a, there were 17 of us. We had all of our classes together, including Kamla, where it was just the 17 of us. Um, and, you know, what I remember about, I mean, Stuart was always idiosyncratic. Um, you know, I don't. I, I think I think everyone everyone have agreed, even in the fall of two thousand one, that he was um, organized along different different sort of principles and different different points than than the rest of us. Um, he was not. You know, he had a very sharp libertarian streak in law school, 
Um, my sense is that he, I mean, he wasn't nearly as radical. And, and I think, you know, my, my sense from sort of secondhand conversations with folks is that he really became radicalized by the election of President Obama. Um, and that yeah. it was, you know, he was, he was a, a sort of a strange dude in law school. I suspect we probably would have, you know, said if anyone was going to commit to just conspiracy in our section, but, but it wasn't like this. So you didn't actually have a Yale Law School vote on who's most likely to be charged with seditious conspiracy in our, we did in not. our class. Right. We did not. Uh, current law students, you might want to, you know, start looking around, considering, you know, awards like that. So you could wave your fingers later on and say, I told you so. Well, I mean, it was, well, it was quite a, I mean, it was quite a week for our, for our law school class. I mean, so we had um, a new circuit judge confirmed from our law school class. Uh, we had a new award for Patrick Radden Keefe, the author who was in our class. Um, and we had a new seditious conspiracy indictment. So the class of 2004, doing work. So the, the last thing I'll mention about the seditious conspiracy charge in this case, I, I don't know if there's any serious uh, talk out there about somehow just as a category, it shouldn't be brought to bear on these facts. I'm sure there's somebody saying something like that, but I don't know if there's any serious discourse. But I will just note that the Capitol has been invaded by people trying to disrupt, violently disrupt what's happening there before. It happened in the 50s when... Uh, uh, when a, a terrorist group uh, advocating Puerto Rican uh, nas- national uh, independence broke in there, firing guns, it was it was it was a still more violent and out to commit murder uh, intervention. So I don't mean to draw a precise comparison, but nonetheless, uh, it was a, uh, a group of non-state actors busting into the crap capital and committing crimes there in order to cause political effects. And seditious conspiracy famously was charged back in 1954 in that case and upheld by the, I guess you have to assume it was a D.C. Circuit case. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think this is actually fairly straightforward. What All the action and the interest here is the sort of the political dimension. Legally speaking, yes. this is terribly complicated. Yes. Speaking of those, speaking of, of, of attempts to overthrow the government in D.C., did you see Michael Flynn's um, line about how a majority of the population of D.C. supported the British during the Revolutionary War? I, I did see that. Uh, yes. Or, no. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like, wait, are you referring to Washington, D.C. from right. a like time loop perspective? How, how would that possibly be? Right. Like, um, um, and, and even if he met, and even if he met the War of 1812, right? Like, so maybe he misspoke and met the War of 1812. Do you know how many people lived in Washington City in the 1810 census? Um, counting slaves or not counting, counting slaves? slaves. Um, don't know. Eight thousand. Yeah, um, yeah. About a quarter of whom were slaves. But yes, I'm um, sure they all supported the British. <laughs> well, um, uh, let's pivot over to the lawsuit Thompson versus Trump, um, and 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 Representative Brooks as well. So we have this uh, Section 1985, uh, Subsection One, civil conspiracy. So so we had seditious conspiracy. Now let's talk civil conspiracy. Um, Steve, same deal. Can you kind of give us the basics of what is what is civil conspiracy under Section 1985? Yeah, I mean, so 1980, so 42 U.S.C. Section 1985. This is a Reconstruction era statute about conspiracy to interfere with civil rights. Um, and there are a couple of different uh, subsections. Um, there's um, subsection one, which is about uh, preventing officers from performing their duties. Subsection two, which I think is the real key here, which is obstructing justice, um, right? Basically, so interfering with like proceedings. Subsection three, depriving persons of their rights or privileges. And the idea here is that like um, Congress wanted to make it a crime for individual, sorry, a, a civil offense, not just a crime. There's, there, there are parallel criminal provisions. Yes. Um, 18 USC 242, I think, is one of the parallel criminal provisions. Congress wanted to create civil remedies as well as criminal ones for private conspiracies to frustrate the enforcement of these new constitutional rights that Congress had conferred in the 14th Amendment. At the time, its real target, Bobby, was, of course, the KKK, but the statute's hardly limited to the KKK. The idea was that, you know, private violence is a real issue, um, and there ought to be civil remedies as well as as well as um, uh, criminal ones. And what's fascinating about the lawsuit here is that, you know, the principal questions are not about the cause of action. The principal questions are about the president's defenses. Yeah, so um, he's, uh, he's tried to invoke uh, presidential immunity, which yep, is under, a thing. Under Nixon versus Fitzgerald, it is a thing. 
And so it turns out, and this is no surprise to people who follow the area, but now a lot of other people are learning about it. There are some fascinating uh, line drawing questions, not about the existence of presidential immunity from civil suit, but exactly what's protected. Now, the, the black letter is at the top level domain. The black letter from Nixon versus Fitzgerald is somewhat really superficially straightforward. Can you can you lay it out and then yes. explain why there's why there's nonetheless still a question to be answered here? Yes. So Nixon versus Fitzgerald says that the president is entitled to absolute immunity for acts undertaken while he's in office that fall within Bobby the, quote, outer perimeter, unquote, of his official duties. And of course, this only sort of floats another question, which is, what are the president's official duties? Was was the president's speech at the rally on January 6th part of his official duties as president? And so a critical thing that I think is, is a hang-up, especially for the non-lawyers encountering this idea of this rule, um, the immediate reaction I think most people have is like, well, setting aside Trump, just in general, if what you're doing is illegal, how can that be part of your official duties? Um, there's, there's a sort of a circularity to that logic. But more importantly, uh, I think it's reasonably clear, especially when you factor in the Paul Jones case, it's, I think it's reasonably clear that the question of whether, if, if you begin from the premise, the president's engaging in official duties, when he then commits an unlawful act, and the classic example people give is the president fires somebody. And so it's definitely an official duty to make that employment decision. Right, and that he was, does that it was with Gerald. Exactly. You, you do it for expressly racially discriminatory or otherwise obviously illegal grounds. The illegality doesn't change the civil immunity. Isn't that right? Yes. Okay, so so the, the possibility that what Trump was doing in that speech may have been illegal, and I'm not saying it was or wasn't, just the possibility that it might be, that's not the question for this particular issue. The question is, when he was speechifying that day, was he doing that as president or was he doing that as candidate? And is there a proper way for judges to draw that distinction when the person is both? His topic, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's tempting to say, well, he was engaging in no sort of official duty because he's out there trying to rally this crowd to, to do X, Y, and Z. Um, some have said, you know, well, what, what he was doing at the high level of abstraction was he was out there speaking about the election and that that is enough to dispose of this as being within the scope of things presidents can do, even if he did it in a particular way that may have been illegal, certainly was improper and was full of inaccurate and false statements. Um, now, if that's right, that makes it sound like so he should be immune. You can't sue him for what he did there. And there may be other consequences, yep. but those seem those seem to be few and far between. But this may not be the authority to reach him. I guess the the big question is: Is there any way to say that nope, this was outside the scope without taking such a big chunk out of presidential immunity that the underlying normative justification for even recognizing it, which is to say to prevent any sort of chilling deterrent effect in how the president in any given point in time is conducting his or her uh, affairs as president going forward. You know, do, do you kind of give away the game there if we carve out in some fashion? Can you can you come up with a rule that excludes Trump's speechifying that morning? I, I don't think the uh, oral argument suggested terribly clearly what such a rule would look like. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I think it's a tough case. And, and I think it's a tough, and even if you get past the presidential immunity issues, you've got First Amendment questions about incitement versus not, right. you know, brand, does, which side of Brandenburg does this fall on? Um, Absolutely. The other point, I mean, just to sort of turn into a Fed courts nerd for a second, whatever Judge Mehta rules, you know, the decision will be immediately appealable um, because he'll either grant the Trump's motion to dismiss or he'll deny it and thereby reject the claim of immunity which is an immediately appealable collateral order. So no matter what, right, this case is going to go up at least to the D.C. Circuit, quite possibly to the Supreme Court, before we ever get past the motion to dismiss stage. Um, now, can I ask you a question? That might, this might curl your hair, but yes. let's say that that process drags on for quite a while, and then there's right. a new presidential election and Trump comes back to office. Right. What, what effect then? Does that introduce a whole separate issue that causes this thing to freeze in place until he's out again? I don't, I mean, certainly he'll make that argument. Of course, you know, Justice Breyer made that argument in Clinton versus Jones and the rest of the court rejected it. Um, 
So, you know, Clinton versus Jones, I think, stands for the proposition that just because the president's the president now doesn't mean he gets extra immunity that he wouldn't otherwise have for claims that accrued before he was president now. Um, but there are lots of other complications that would arise. I mean, you know, listen, if Trump gets elected again, this is the least of our this, is the least, this is the least of the issues. Um, Fair point. But, Fair point. But I want to use that, though, as a, as a segue to... You know what's more likely, I think, to tell to 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 provide more interesting um, developments than Thompson versus Trump is Trump versus Thompson, um, which is Trump's effort to block the National Archives and Records Administration from turning over various presidential records to the January sixth committee, um, and you know that um, that suit had produced a really, really thorough um, unanimous panel opinion from the D.C. Circuit in December, rejecting Trump's argument. Like, so to, to back up a second, President Biden had refused to invoke executive privilege um, right. against the disclosure of four tranches of documents in the possession of the National Archives and Records Administration. And Trump sued in the D.C. Circuit, basically, well, he sued in D.D.C., um, basically saying, wait a second, you know, I should be allowed to assert privilege even if Biden can't, um, even if Biden didn't. Um, and the lower court and the D.C. Circuit both disagree with him. Trump has since filed a cert petition and he's asked the Supreme Court for emergency relief. Um, Bobby, we could hear from the Supreme Court as early as today and certainly in the next couple of weeks about whether to grant not just the cert petition, but Trump's application for an emergency injunction. Because without that emergency injunction, the D.C. Circuit's temporary administrative injunction will expire um, and these documents will have to be turned over. Um, and one has to think that Trump is fighting this vigorously to prevent these documents from being turned over because there's something in them he doesn't like. Yeah, it's it's tantalizing, isn't it? Um, so first, I'll say just to be to be really blunt about it, I think his claim is baloney. I don't think. Of course it is. <laughs> You're, you're not president. The presidency is an office and there's only one president at any given time. There's only one chief executive. This decision belongs to whoever currently holds that power. Full stop. Um, that doesn't mean well, there won't and, and, this, and, and this Supreme Court especially. I mean, like, you know, like this is a court that as much as any court in American history, right, would embrace the notion of a unitary executive. So, so do you think we're like prediction time? Do you think we're likely to get at least a stay so that they can, you know, th this is kind of a one way street once it releases. Do you think it's easy for them to pass on this, let the chips fall where they may? So, my bold prediction all along, which could be wrong by the time people listen to this, um, is actually that Trump's going to wipe out in the Supreme Court, that the court is going to deny emergency relief, that the court is going to deny his cert petition, maybe Bobby over a couple of dissents. But I actually think, like, this is a, even someone like a Justice Kavanaugh and a Justice Barrett. Like, there's no compelling reason to get into the middle of this case. Um, uh, you know, another thing to bear in mind, you're right that the, the, the pushback suggests, like, well, there must be much to hide. I don't know. He's, he's kind of the pushback no matter what sort. True. And I don't have a lot of confidence that the former president and others who were involved that morning in in communications that may turn out to be quite problematic, I have relatively little confidence that that all of them were taking place on platforms that resulted in record preservation. In fact, I'm reasonably confident, in fact, quite confident that uh, probably the, the worst stuff or whatever there is that's most relevant and interesting probably was taking place in other ways that uh, were not preserved in compliance with uh, federal statutory obligations on this. I think that was, I think that is an, an extremely big historical problem overlaying at least the Trump yes. presidency. And, and, and frankly, it's yeah. probably yeah. been an ongoing, as communication platforms have prolifer proliferated uh, over the years, it's probably been a degree of problem writ large uh, for yes. all sorts of executive branch and White House officials. But her emails, Bobby, but her emails. Um, all right. As exemplified, um, yeah. Speaking of Trump's lawyers, did you see this amazing, amazing brief they filed in the YouTube case? Uh, unaware? No. Tell me no. about it. So Which Trump, is suing, 
Trump is suing YouTube for various reasons, including like right, YouTube sort of took down some of his content. You know, similar sort of similar in, in idea to his suit against Twitter and Facebook, right? Um, so um, uh, um, YouTube filed a motion to dismiss on the ground that Trump's claims simply weren't plausible. Um, plausibility being the the critical standard for factual allegations as of 2009, and the Supreme Iqbal. Court's decision in a case called Iqbal. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Good. Well done, Bobby. All right. So Thank I want to read you. So the Trump lawyers, you, you pass 1L civil procedure. You know who does not pass 1L civil procedure? Uh-oh. What did they say in their papers? <clears throat> Ashcroft, not Iqbal, but Ashcroft and Twomley are frequently erroneously cited by defendants and even some courts for the proposition that to survive a Rule 12b6 motion, a complaint must be, quote, plausible on its face, unquote. That is incorrect. In both of those cases, Bobby, in both of those cases, they wrote, the Supreme Court applied the plausibility standard in assessing the viability of Sherman Act Section 1 conspiracy allegations. That rule makes sense in a cartel case that otherwise could sweep defendants into years of litigation with the threat of treble damages based on a bare allegation of what could be lawful parallel conduct. It has no application here. They're literally arguing that Iqbal, which was not an antitrust case, doesn't apply outside of the antitrust context. That's not right. Not Even is I that, know that not right. That, that hasn't been right since 2009. There is every single law student has learned since 2009 that Iqbal is the general standard for pleading. Like, awkward. Ah! Well, you know, it's hard to get... The, the great resignation is affecting a lot of industries, Steve, and it's sometimes hard to get uh, <laughs> people to work for you in your uh, place of business, and perhaps that's aff- afflicting their whichever firm this might be. Uh, um, that's really that's really something. Um, the um, I sent this. I sent this to the. I sent this to the CivPro listserv, and and the CivPro listserv had a collective aneurysm. <laughs> you know, I haven't done any of those. I, I used to be on Common Law listserv long ago. Uh, You're not I, missing I hear anything. That those listservs are still going strong. You're I not think. missing anything. Um, no. So should we turn our attention to Guantanamo? Well, before we turn to Guantanamo, you would want to talk about insurrection. Um, I think we got covered. No, no, I think we're good. I think we covered. Uh, was there was there anything else? Am I missing something? Well, so so the one other piece of the Oathkeeper story that I do think is worth just a quick blurb on um, is the sort of the claim that's coming out from the lawyers, who, by the way, should stop talking to the press. But that's another matter. Speaking of bad lawyering. Um, that what in that that what the oath keepers were really doing, they were there in Washington waiting to be activated by President Trump as a militia under the Insurrection Act. Have you have you seen this reporting? No, I'm I'm a little confused by the logic there. That, that they were waiting like some sort of like is was it some sort of claim of like the original conception of militia that they could be activated at, separate and apart from the National Guard system? Well, so on that point, they are technically correct um, in the sense that there is still, I want to, I want to pull it up. I think it's due to do, where is it? It's 250. There is still like an old school standalone provision. Um, I think it's two, 10 USC 246, um, right? That does sort of define the militia. And if you read the Insurrection Act, right, there's a provision that does allow for calling forth not just the army, Bobby, but the militia. Um, right, because this language dates to 1871, and so male at least 17 years of age, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, yeah. So I just I say all of this just to point out once again for like the 417th time that the Insurrection Act could really be abused and exploited in ways that Congress, I have to think, could form a pretty easy consensus to push back against, and that it is long past time for meaningful reform of the Insurrection Act. All right. So what you're pointing to, I'm looking at 10 U.S. Code 246, and it definitely does still give statutory recognition to not just the organized militia, which in today's world is the National Guard, um, 
but also the original conception of the just the the adult male um, members of the population in a certain age range. Uh, it's a little complicated here looking at ever because they've they've tweaked it a bit to include others, but it refers expressly to the organized militia as such, and it refers expressly to the unorganized militia uh, in a way that. So what you're saying is this lies about like a loaded weapon waiting to be picked up by a chief executive who says, all right, I hereby activate uh, the following uh, the following private armed groups as long as they f- have the age range and citizenship requirements that are loosely mentioned here. Now, what would follow if he did that? Like what kind of, what sort of authority could a president who wants to read this for all it's worth and lean into it, what could they, what could that president cloak them with? Um, not authority to arrest, right? But I guess authority to bear arms and uh, why could why, why why couldn't he give them arrest authority if they've been federalized? I mean, so if if you if you tie two forty six together with two fifty two, which provides mm-hmm. for the use of the militia and armed forces to enforce federal authority, right? The president may call into federal service such of the militia of any state and use such of the armed forces as he considers necessary to enforce those laws or to suppress the rebellion. I think you could construct a plausible argument that the president could call forth members of the militia to put down what the president identifies as an unlawful protest. Oh, an unlawful so right. So you're saying that first the president has made the Section 252 determination to unlock it. And if the president feels like I can't get the regular armed forces to do what I want them to do, which imagining scenarios where that's easy to imagine. Uh, and I can't get state national guard units, even when federalized to do what I want them to do. I could call upon my private, uh, little organized armed groups and, and federalize them into militia status and then call upon them to enforce the laws. Ooh, risky, scary it's, stuff. Why, why leave this here? This is a vestigial remnant of an, of a standby authority from a time when we actually did use the militia. We don't anymore. The National Guard has supplanted it. Like it should be a no brainer to just update and, I mean, yes, there are hard questions at the margins about how to modernize the Insurrection Act. This is not one of them. No, I agree. I think that uh, as we've said often on the show, if you're listening to this thinking like, yeah, well, like, but nonetheless, I think I trust the the hypothetical president more than you do. All right, fine, but change your hypothetical president to whoever you least trust in politics. Make that person the president of the United States, and then right. imagine them with this authority and ask, "Is this really the is this really the right way to run the railroad?" And the answer is probably yep. no. All, All right, right that's scary. Wrong way to run, speaking of the wrong way to run the railroad, should we take a quick Guantanamo detour? Uh, we've lost more judges. We take a one month break, and the judges are changing again. What happened this time? Uh, so I, I, I think it was in the Hadi al-Iraqi case, the judge who was assigned um, was awarded some kind of FBI fellowship, so he could no longer handle the al-Iraqi case. Um, right. There's also Bobby news today that the new judge presiding over the, um, I think it was the Nashiri case, canceled the next sitting of the Nashiri pretrial proceedings because apparently of COVID concerns and not enough, not enough stuff to do. Um, so, you know, just further proof that the military commissions are just trucking right along in nothingness. Um, no, this is, this is, this is bonkers. That's the I technical think term. I, I think the, but I think the biggest news, Bobby, is the five new detainees who have been cleared for transfer. Right. So the, the periodic review board process um, is the process that does not, does not go back and revisit the initial determination either by the military or then through the habeas process as to eligibility, legally speaking, for detention, but rather just ask, okay, nonetheless, even assuming they were detainable, is it in policy, is it policy uh, permissible and desirable, perhaps, to transfer them out either under conditions or outright transfer them out? And if so, uh, certain determinations have to be made, but if they're made, then the person becomes eligible for transfer. And this is basically the pathway out that, that's been used in many, 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 many cases, but not of late. And so we we now have a, a quietly growing list over the past year of PRB determination saying, okay, go ahead and move this person. Um, but we don't actually have people moving, right, Steve? 
So right. So so if I just do kind of um, fill in the math for a second, just so I think it'll help put this in context. Um, so folks might remember that there are 39 detainees still at Guantanamo. 12 of them are in the military commissions, two because they've been convicted, 10 because they are awaiting trial. So let's bracket. I mean, yes, the military commissions suck, but that's a different phenomenon. Um, Bobby, of the 27 who are not in the military commission system, these latest clearances bring the total number of clear of cleared for transfer to 18, two thirds. We had a bunch that were already cleared. They were Yemeni and they, they couldn't be repatriated because of concerns about conditions on the ground in Yemen. And that continues to be the case. No, no one, that was, uh, I believe, a late last year of Obama determination. Yep. All throughout the Trump years, no action. And now with one year of Biden down, still no action there. But now a growing set of, of non-Yemeni, I think they're all non-Yemeni, the, the new batch. So the new, I think, I believe most of the new, I'm looking at the list. So I think the new ones, there's a, the, these aren't in chronological order, so it's hard to tell for sure. But I think there's one Yemeni in the new ones, and then there's Pakistan, Somalia, Kenya, Afghanistan. So they're queuing up the non-Milcom subset of the legacy group for, for transfer. But, 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 you said it, but, but, they're, but they're not transferring. I mean, so, so you know, the PRP process clears the hurdles on this side. You still have to find another country that's willing to take these detainees. And, you know, for various reasons to which we are not privy, the Biden administration has just been completely unable through, you know, one full year in office, right, as of tomorrow, um, to actually find any country to take any of these detainees. Right. In some cases, the obstacle may be that the, we're willing to send them back to their home country. Home country is not willing to accept. That that yeah. happens sometimes. Yep. In other yeah, cases, we may not be willing to... Right. There, there's there's in other cases, we may be willing to send to, to a third country only. And right. that requires the diplomatic dance. And of course, the countries that get approached for this are not fools. They, they're like, all right, let, well, let's negotiate that. And their price may be too high. So this leads, I mean, this leads to what I thought was a remarkable development yesterday. So I don't know if you saw this, Bobby, the International Com uh, Committee for the Red Cross put out a statement. Um, the ICRC is very prudent and very careful and does not stick its neck out publicly that often, right? That it, it you know, for various reasons, I think the ICRC is of the view that it's, it's, it can be most effective when it's not, you know, the story, right? When it's working behind the scenes. Let me, let me underscore that. Certainly throughout its 20th century history, a absolutely essential element of the identity of the ICRC is that its conversations were behind closed doors with governments. They didn't, they didn't manage their uh, issues through public engagement in the press. All right. So yesterday, ICRC put out a statement, Bobby, after 20 years of visits to detainees at Guantanamo Bay, the ICRC is calling for accelerated efforts by the U.S. government to transfer all of the detainees that it deemed eligible for transfer without further delay. Um, that may sound tepid to the average, you know, to, to, to the typical listener. Bobby, that is a stunning public statement to me from the ICRC. I got to say, I find it unhelpful because I don't think the Biden administration lacks interest here and to suggest that it, it, it kind of implies that, well, it's the Biden administration doesn't seem to be focused on this. They'll get to it when they get to it. Uh, maybe that's the case. Maybe. That's not my impression. My impression is these are extremely diplomatically difficult discussions where there sometimes just isn't a good partner for this. And then you might say, like, right, but the import of the ICRC statement is America needs to drop its conditions to the extent that its conditions are what the problem is. And it's very hard for me to accept from the outside that that's clearly the case across the board in every instance. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's all that helpful, but I agree with you that it's, it's, you know, it's a bold move. That's not in character with oh, traditional, although the past 20 years, the ICRC on Guantanamo type issues has not always been publicly silent. It hasn't been publicly silent, but I guess, I mean, I, I'm not making an assessment whether it's helpful or not. I just think it is, it is telling that the ICRC is publicly expressing frustration um, with the the with the inability of now multi, you know three successive administrations, two that were actually trying to and one that was not, um, to reduce even the population of those detainees who have been cleared for transfer. 
So it does, of course, you and I have talked about how I think we share this view that what the Biden administration either very smartly and purposely has done, or maybe has just defaulted into, is effectively a global war on terrorism effectively over, but we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to make any firm, uh, attackable uh, commitments. We're just going to basically study policy issues. We're going to pull back on drone strikes, at least to some extent, in some locations, we're going, to let the, we're going to invigorate the PRB process, and we're just going to kind of quietly let the chips begin to fall where they may. Um, the PRB moves seem very consistent with that, with the idea that the way you close Guantanamo is not to do something flashy that attracts political antibodies. Rather, you, you make sure that the PRB is being incentivized to, to do its work, and then you start doing the diplomatic, or you lean into the diplomatic work needed to effectuate it. Now, of course, that only addresses the non-military commission side of the legacy population. Then you're left with the ongoing train wreck of the Milcoms process. And once again, the question arises, is, is there some way, especially if you're able to transfer everybody else, that you can in some way shift the prosecutorial effort back into civilian courts after all? And we've talked about that on this show ad nauseum. Um, and I still think that's the toughest nut to crack, and that I, I, I think any the end. Well, or or the or you know you you find as many of the, of those defendants as possible and convince them to plead their way out of Guantanamo, like that. I've always thought plea bargains were the way were the way you cut that Gordian knot. But so ten years from now is the state of affairs that there's no more there's no one there held simply under color of the law of armed conflict and the NDAA and the AUMF, but rather. A small number of individuals, maybe five to ten people, who are serving prison sentences in one of the facilities there as just this small legacy piece, or do you foresee them at some point being onshored? If you ask me, over under on January twentieth, twenty thirty two, if I think there are going to be more than eleven and a half detainees still at Guantanamo, which would encompass all the military commission people, right? And at least, let's say 12 and a half. So all the military commission people and at least one more. I would bet the over at this point. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot, of, not a lot in our politics that would be consistent with being more aggressive about it. But maybe at some point it just becomes such a stale issue that it's possible to quietly move people around. Or, or maybe a comet, Bobby, or maybe a comet comes and destroys the earth. Didn't that, wasn't there an asteroid that actually got kind of near us the other day or like, this past yeah, yeah, week, I'm, I'm talking about don't look up. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, have you seen that? Or I have. You have no time for films. Oh, uh, yeah, time for I that. Have. You didn't have time for Boba Fett. It's so wrong. That was before Boba Fett. Okay, it was. I watched All it. Right. All right, fair enough. Um, All right. Speaking, All right I think, so speaking of, should we, should we pivot to frivolity? Yes, it's frivolity time. Um, okay, so Jim Carrey, uh, you've already mentioned your your appreciation for liar liar. Um, I'll throw in another one that's, I think, of his more appealing works. Mr. Popper's Penguins. Do you and the girls watch that? Huh. We have not, but I, 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 I've heard good things. At least that's my recollection. I can't remember what sort of age group is is ideal for that, but I remember it being something we watched when they were pretty young. Um, Ace Ventura, uh, are you a fan? Yeah, I don't, I don't love it. I don't hate it, but I don't have a, a – like I wouldn't stop if I was scrolling and uh, couldn't find anything to watch, and that was on. I'd probably keep going. How do you feel about Dumb and Dumber? I hate it. <laughs> I like that more than Ace Ventura. I will admit. Um, so this is this is a really like this is an unfortunate thing about me. I have a like I don't enjoy awkward humor. Like awkward humor just makes me feel uncomfortable. Yes, that's the joy of it. I hear you though. It's it's definitely like a particular taste. What about something that's um, very different? Did did you like Charlie Kaufman's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? You know, I, I liked it. I liked. I didn't love it. I liked it. Yeah, um, Truman Show itself, great great fun. I actually really like Truman Show. I think it's it was a it was a nice little concept piece. Um, what are we missing? That's Great fun. Bruce Almighty was a pretty fun, um, sort of in the what same the spirit. Andy, what, was the, what was the Andy Kaufman movie? Man in the Moon? Yeah, I didn't see that. Um, trying to think. Bruce Almighty? 
Yeah, yeah. I just mentioned that one. That was that was pretty oh, good. I'm sorry, I, um, I was I was busy trying to think of other ones. My bad. Uh, the mask um, gives me the creeps. I don't love the mask. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, listen. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I, I think liar liar might be the clubhouse leader on this list. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go with <laughs> liar liar number one. I'm agree with you, and then I'm putting Mr. Popper's penguins uh, number two, just ahead of Truman Show. Aren't you shocked that two lawyers chose liar liar from Jim Carrey's filmography <laughs> as? as <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm not down with is the uh, his live action uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. There's only mm. one Grinch. The only Grinch is the original Grinch. All other Grinch are faux Grinch, and I'm not on board with them. Um, what about and speaking of things we might not be on board with, uh, the Giants were not on board with the playoffs, and then the Cowboys decided they weren't on board with the playoffs either. So <laughs> I will say the the Giants fan in me did thoroughly enjoy the back to back losses on Sunday afternoon by the Eagles and the Cowboys. That was that was a good time. I, I enjoyed that very much. Okay, what do you have views on the crazy final play and the, the, the allegation of severely inexcusable mismanagement of the clock by the Cowboys on at the end? Was that just so, like look, they were trying something, it didn't work, or was it like that's that's not acceptable? I think I, I'll say two things. I think all, Dak just has to slide three seconds earlier for that to work. Um, yep. Right. Like I don't mind the play call. I mind that he didn't give himself up earlier. Like if you're you going to do that, you got to know. Draw that you are not trying to get every yard. You're trying right. to get a certain chunk when you feel that you've gone like ten or fifteen or whatever it was. You got like, to you you give yourself up. Yep. Yeah. Um, so 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 number one, number two, the Cowboys should never have been in that position. Um, they they very they, they cowboyed themselves into that position in the first place through a ton of yeah. inexcusable penalties and other boneheaded clock mismanagement and bungling in very typical cowboy fashion. Severely indisciplined. The number yeah. of, of inexcusable, like so, like they have this great like fake punt. It works great, yeah. and then they get a delay of game coming off their own successful fake punt. That's just lack of discipline. Full stop. Yep. Um, and then. Um, try to think. What else are going to say? Yeah. Other than that, I mean, I do you have a do you have a favorite team that's left in the playoffs? Let me just say to close out the Cowboys, they have some serious cap issues, and they yeah. are kind of hosed by their Ezekiel Elliott contract, which everybody at the time of that contract said you can't pay running backs that way. It's going to kill you later on, and now it's going to kill them. They're going to lose a lot of talent. It's going to be hard for them to make it back up. Um, yep. and, and it will hurt them too if they lose their defensive coordinator Dan Quinn to go be head head coach somewhere else. Um, all right, so of the remainder, let's just kind of go around the horn. Uh, I like seeing the Bengals getting a little taste of success. Joe Burrow's fun to watch. Um, yeah, but the, I mean, I think the I think the Titans are a terrible matchup for them. Yeah, they're they're they're. This is an early early sign for the Bengals. They'll be probably better in the future. I don't think they're going further. But Joe Burrow's kind of magic. Um, the Titans get Derrick Henry yeah. back. They've, they've I think I think I think the Titans. I think, I think the Titans. I think the Titans have no problem in that game. Um, I think the Packers will smush the 49ers Saturday well, stay night. On the Real quick, stay on the AFC. So uh, are you with the yeah. Chiefs to uh, go to the next round or what? I, Bobby, I which Chiefs team shows up? Like, I feel like when the Chiefs are firing on all cylinders, they are unquestionably the best team in the NFL, but they have had so many games this season where they didn't. Yeah, you're right. That That's hard to judge in the extreme. I guess uh, – Buffalo looked like unstoppable against the Patriots. Against the Patriots, yeah. I wonder how much of that reflects just the Patriots had had a nice little run, much better for a while there than it seemed like they had yeah. any right to be this year. Yeah. And it's just they're, yeah. they're, they ran out of gas there. That said, you know, Josh Allen's looking good. So I think that game is going to be a blast to watch. Yeah. If, if the I think, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to go a little crazy here. I think the favorites are going to win on Saturday. So I think the Titans will hold serve. I think the Packers will hold serve. And I think both of the underdogs are going to somehow pull it. I, I think the Bills are going to go into Arrowhead and eke out a win. And I think the Rams, I, I think that game, like something clicked. And I think they actually, you know. You know, it's now they kind of they kind of blew it in the finale against the 49ers. But did. 49, that was kind of a special deal. Um, I think the Rams look really good, and here's a key. I think there's at least a couple of Tampa Bay linemen uh, yeah. who are hobbled right yeah. now, yeah. and 
that could be the difference. Now, um, and, and the Rams and the Rams have a defensive front that can get to Tom Brady. Yeah, they can they can put heat on him. Now, if anyone can deal with the heat, it's Tom Brady, obviously. And yet, and yet, I, I kind of I could see Sunday being a sort of upset day, and then Saturday being chalk day. Um, and then, do you want to go further from there, or do you want to just leave it at that for now? I'm so. I mean, I think I think I've got so I've got Rams Packers in the NFC Championship. I've got Bills Titans in the AFC. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on a limb, and I'm saying Bills Rams in the Super Bowl. Rams play a home game in the Super Bowl. I could kind of feel that. I could kind of feel that um, if they become the team of momentum. All right, we'll see. If, you know, and, nice and also, it would be like the Packers have lost so many home playoff games. You know, in the Aaron Rodgers era, like I just, I feel like you know, another one is inevitable. Another one, they may be cursed. All right, so we'll see how. So basically, put your bets all in opposite of the four things we just said, and you'll be exactly. just fine. And at the rate we're recording episodes, we ought to do our 2022 baseball predictions soon too. But <laughs> I hope there's a season. That's the one prediction I, I'd like exactly. to see. Indeed. All right, um, I gotta go pick up Maddie from school. Good times. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, if you guys, you know, we we are obviously we have plenty to discuss. But if there are things out there you'd like us to cover in our next episode, which may or may not be soon, uh, let us know. Till then, guys, stay safe out there. Adios.